the truth of the matter is, I don't actually think that is the mechanism. Like, uh, for instance, there's a uh, uh, there's somebody who works on particle accelerators that I've uh, interacted with a few times. Who, who's, uh, who's also been um, uh, it's, it's one of those things. It's can you, you're a heretic when you kind of look at uh, other views, uh, and which is you shouldn't. It doesn't make any sense in science. It shouldn't yeah. it shouldn't be an issue to say, hey, I want to look at these other ideas. But uh, so this is a uh, somebody who works in particle accelerators, and she uh, uh, was expressing how she studies exactly the, um, the way in which Lorentz effects uh, happen in particles, in particle clusters, and it's like you know how it's described in mainstream just does not work at all with what she's seeing. But uh, but she um, she tends to agree with what I'm saying. I'm, I'm, I'm watching her basically. She's on Quora is a, is a good place where there's a lot of uh, authors who are kind of you know, uh, both very much mainstream and, uh, and also a little off to the side, and then there's people who are completely But uh, you know, it's, there's there's all all kinds you can run into there. But uh, like for instance, I had some some pretty extreme polemics with uh, uh, with one of the physicists from uh, LIGO. Uh, he doesn't he no longer he wasn't working there after the uh, the gravity or even around the time of the gravity wave measurements because that happened after they. Like vastly reorganized uh, how uh, their systems worked, but the LIGO was detecting nothing for you know like many 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 years, like like ten, 10 or so years, and then suddenly they have all these signals, and which is a little suspect in my opinion. Though I, the thing is, it waves in the ether, it's large scale waves in the ether, and that's not any you know surprise or weirdness to me. But at the same time, something about their methodologies and things, the way in which they're they're looking at it. And there's some seriously suspect things about how it suddenly they're getting a signal, and I don't know. So, but that's that's just my level of skepticism on that. Like I said, it's it has it has no bearing on this one way or the other. <laughs> it's not going to be a problem for me to go. So yeah, we got into some serious because he just he the funny thing is he now works at some uh, physics lab. In he would he would just start right out insulting. I mean, any any discussion, he would just go slam to the ad hominem, just <laughs> hardcore. Pole vaulting like, him. Oh yeah, he was he was pole vaulting straight into ad hominem right off the bat every time. All right, I guess we could uh, go ahead and start. Got plenty of people here, and I'm five minutes into it. All right, uh, so most of you all have already been here, so I don't have to get too much into kind of a recap. Oh, you wanted. Um, so today's uh, lecture is going to be about uh, how fluid dynamics interact with uh, ether physics, and basically fluid dynamics uh, at a um, very tiny level is uh, is what is, describes the mechanics uh, that uh, that actually underpin our current understanding of quantum mechanics. So, uh, all right, I'm going to start out with some understandings of exactly how strange quantum mechanics is. And these are some of the uh, quotes that are pretty relevant here. Anyone who is not shocked by quantum theory has not understood a single word before. If you're not completely confused by quantum mechanics, you cannot understand it not either. Uh, quantum mechanics makes absolutely no sense. And it is safe to say that nobody understands quantum mechanics. Finally. So 
The idea that quantum mechanics is something that we really understand and we got a, a good handle on it, we know what we're doing, is an impression that people get when in fact there are multiple interpretations that have kind of fallen by the wayside without any good reason for them to have done so. And, and now because there is such a large level of confusion with what we're dealing with, but also at the same time a great deal of precision and predictability, there's once again this kind of dichotomy that is very difficult. How do you deal with that as a human being? Whenever you're you know, looking at it, it's like, what do I, what do, I do with this? So, so people are very confused by it, because, and they say, well, you just, they kind of have this, the, the thing that you're taught in any religion when you're indoctrinated into a, into a religion is that's beyond you. You just can't ever use your brain to think, you just have to accept that there's this greater thing, and I don't buy into that. I don't care who it's coming from. Uh, and uh, so, uh, let's see, uh, science. The duty of a man to investigate the writings of scientists according to the truth of his will is to make himself an enemy of all that he reads and attack it from every side. He should also suspect himself that he performs his work in examination of it so that he may avoid falling into either history or abuse. Uh, science is a belief in the individual experts and completely respected in folklore authority is the greatest enemy of truth. So, so there's some good relevant quotes here when we go and we're going to start talking about some of the uh, interpretations. Now, uh, a foreword on what we're looking at. Right now, the dominant interpretations that I'm going to be talking about are uh, the many worlds interpretation and then there's the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics. But what everybody's probably familiar with, because of what, what makes it so new, is the most magical effects. Anything that's really, really, wow, that is so weird and you couldn't possibly understand it and all that, that's what makes it in the news, that's what makes it to the mainstream where more people hear. Now, what the individual scientists, when you you start like really probing, especially scientists who are not in the news. In other words, there's like different kinds of scientists. There's scientists who are in the news, and those guys are really, really confident about their set of beliefs as though it is the only ones. And then there's the scientists who are actually making, you know, developments, and and most of those are actually not nearly as uh, overconfident. There's uh, there's, so there's there's different types of, of people, a wide spectrum of people in the whole science. The idea of who's a scientist or uh, supporting or not uh, the various views. So um, the, some of the things that people are probably familiar with is uh, something uh, Einstein called spooky action at a distance, which is the idea that you do something to a particle here and then another particle which is entangled in some way, whatever that means, uh, then it, it is also affected instantaneously, if it, even if it's uh, a billion galaxies away. Uh, and that idea, of course, um, sounds a bit magical, doesn't it? Well, it's pretty <laughs> but, uh, uh, Einstein uh, actually, he it was you know, near the end of his life. He kind of finally was like, eh, okay, I guess, whatever. You know, all of you guys agree. But uh, he actually was very much kind of uh, put to the side. There's a, there's a few different quotes of his I have where he was, uh, you know, he's kind of insulting. He, he sort of started to become kind of a man who was being kicked out of science. Now his hero character was still being held as a as a hero while the man himself was kind of being pushed out because he was disagreeing with this great new thing that was quantum mechanics. But it wasn't that this, it was a specific interpretation as the, uh, I think it was the Solvay conference uh, where they, they first kind of you know, came together into this Copenhagen interpretation because that is the one that is the most dominant. That's the one that has the most magical ideas and things of that nature. So one of the first things is, uh, Wave-particle duality. So the idea uh, that uh, I may have, I don't know if you guys remember the, uh, the things I was
was showing yesterday where you've got the particles going through the slits, and also you're going to have to excuse me because I don't remember what all I have on these. Uh, okay, yes, I do have. Good, I do have a slide for it. <laughs> it's like, uh, I don't remember which slides I have and which ones I don't. Uh, let me go back to there. Oh, it's being slow, isn't it? Excuse me, go back. Yes, there we go. Um, so, uh, wave particle duality is the idea that it's not is that something could be both a particle and a wave simultaneously. Now, if you were in yesterday's uh, lecture, you can kind of see how it's there was a start in a, a, the with special relativity where we got to this idea that waves just exist without anything, they just be, and which doesn't make any sense because it's an action. Then that actually is a large reason why we have this idea of wave particle duality in quantum physics because that came after. So we started accepting that we no longer needed any kind of mechanics. We can just accept that it just has this reality. And the thing is, uh, what I'm going to have to try to explain by the time we get done here is the idea that you can take something that is a characteristic and believe it is a thing. And then in treating it as the thing, it, there's still a use in that. In other words, it can be useful. It can actually be productive even, even though you're not understanding and you have the, your borderlines all mixed. Uh, there's a way to do that. And I'm going to show some of that uh, in this presentation. So do we need wave particle duality? Um, so just a year after uh, formulation of Schrodinger's equation, or Mellon uh, demonstrated that it can be recast in hydrodynamic form. So that means that uh, you know the things that you know, which are the you know kind of like the base of, of quantum mechanics, can actually be handled as a fluid mechanics. I mean that you can transfer it directly over to this fluid mechanical uh, set of calculations and uh, be able to describe all the same behaviors. Um, so 1950, you have the phase space formulation of QN, and, and there's, I'm not going to get into a whole lot of it here, but uh, this is part of one of my papers, I, uh, I, can, uh, you know, I can link to the paper if you like, but it just basically gets into how um, the, uh, let's see, there is something in uh, looking at quantum mechanics where we, uh, we talk about the collapse of the wave function, I'm going to get to that in a moment, and the idea of probability being at the basis of reality. Now, if you've been, uh, if you're familiar with some of the things that uh, are kind of part of the, you know, science shows you watch and things like that, they talk about it's like, well, you know, at the base of reality is, you know, it's just probability, and uh, that idea also is a magical ideation, and it's uh, once again not necessary. It is part of an interpretation, and there are interpretations that can produce the same result as that idea, but have a mechanics. So, um, so one of the things that yeah I, is demonstrated is that you can use the the Broglie uh, trajectories to be able to match the probabilistic models. It's uh, well, but I'm getting a little too kind of technical here, so we'll just continue forward and talk about some of the uh, basic mechanics. So, so what am I talking about here? I'm talking about as I uh, was mentioning yesterday. Is here you have like um. Uh, you fire them at a, uh, uh, a two slits, and they should come out in the, just these two lines. But if they behave as a um, as a wave, then when you fire them at the uh, the slits, you should have an interference pattern come out the other side. And so you have these fringes. And so here's the thing: there is something called the uh, single electron dual slit experiment, and in this experiment. Uh, and there's, so this, this is a good reason for confusion, because 
this is a very difficult question to answer when you look at it. And that is, when we fired just one electron, which you have to understand at this point, I've just given you an idea that has a lot of presumptions in it. But when we fire one electron at this, these, uh, these screens and just do it one at a time, the pattern that will come up is an interference pattern. How can a wave, first off, interfere with itself? If there, you know, and how can a particle, if it's a particle, it should go through one or the other, not both. And you have to have it going through both for it to interfere and create the fringes, which are part of an interference pattern. So when we talked about you know, the interference pattern and how those basically the you know the spherical waves and how they interact with you know uh, peaks and troughs. Um, uh, interfering, and you have constructive and destructive interference, and that creates, creates this fringe pattern. So that did not make sense, and so right off the bat, they're like, well, that's it, wave particle duality, we can't, we can't figure it out. Here's the thing, this was, I guess back in, I think that was around 1951, they did this experiment, I suppose. Um, but in modern day, uh, there's something I'm going to be talking about, which is the, um, the Walker experiment, or the uh, uh, silicon oil drop experiment by and in this, we have been able to construct, uh, to, um, we've been able to show at a macro level the same sorts of very, very weird behaviors that we're talking about right here, in which there you have a single particle, but it's also accompanied by a wave. So here, upon looking at this whole idea of, and there's uh, De Broglie and Bohm are uh, are two major scientists who uh, they have something called uh, pilot wave theory. And uh, what they said is that perhaps there is a wave and a particle, but it's not you know, just a particle or just a wave, that they are, um, that they are interacting in some way. And then if we, if we see that the wave is passing through and interacting with itself, and then that alters the trajectory of the particle that only goes through one, then that would make sense. And uh, everybody else didn't like that, I suppose, but a pilot wave is making a comeback right now. A lot of people are aware that pilot wave is making not aware of exactly what all that means uh, for the Copenhagen interpretation and all those ideas that we had and how it, it basically takes this whole section of science and a tremendous amount of uh, experimental science will we'll have to, some of it will just throw away as just worthless uh, exercises of futility and some of it will be able to reinterpret as like, oh, that's what's going on, okay. Um, so, uh, <laughs> uncertainty, so there's the, uh, the uncertainty principle as well. So the, there's this idea that um, in quantum, quantum physics that a particle isn't in any one place at one time. Now this specific uh, description I'm giving right here, uh, a lot of physicists do not like this because, but they don't have anything better when you press them. Uh, it's like they'll just say, ah, I don't like that. It's like, okay, well give me a better, well there isn't one, it's beyond your, your comprehension. Okay. Um, so I'm just supposed to take it on faith. That's that's what I'm supposed to do. Okay, gotcha. Um, so what I'm trying to demonstrate here is that there is I've got pictures here where the shutter speed is different between the various uh, ones that we're looking at. In one case, I have I can determine the position of this ball very well, but I don't know how fast it's going. Now, if I know the the, the speed the shutter speed of a camera, uh, I can actually determine how fast that ball is moving by how big the smear is. Now, there's gonna be a level of error because it's not gonna be very exact, but what's happening is when you open the shutter, however much light is getting in for that you know, period of time, 
you can, you can do calculations to figure out how fast one of those balls is moving. Well, the longer the shutter is open, the more it's going to smear across the screen. And that's going to give me a lot, of, a bigger sample for me to determine how fast the ball is going. But in my picture that I've just taken with that big long smear, I can't determine exactly where the particle is because it's not in any one location. So there is this idea that uh, in, in uh, quantum mechanics that you cannot simultaneously know the position and the momentum. And I'm using the, the word momentum in a very uh, loose fashion right now, just be aware of that. Uh, but it is very similar to this. And, and so you cannot know both the position and the momentum simultaneously. And this is a simple way of looking at it that uh, Schrodinger himself uh, tried to point out to people and it became a teaching tool instead of what he was doing, which was to uh, make fun of people. And, uh, and that has only, it's only started in the past, I guess, seven or eight years I've noticed a change where people have started picking up again that uh, Schrodinger was making fun of people and this was not him trying to demonstrate something with Schrodinger's cat. Uh, so, so in the Copenhagen interpretation, you have the spooky actions at a distance, uh, in many worlds, it's actually deterministic. So, um, so in, in Copenhagen, you have something called a, uh, a wave function collapse, where the, all the, uh, there's all these prob probabilities and all these realities that end up being defined into one. And so the particle that was all spread out becomes in one place when you observe it. That's the, the kind of the, the basis of Copenhagen interpretation. In many worlds, uh, they're saying, well, in all the possible locations that a particle could be, it is there, and it does exist, and then at a certain point, uh, all of those worlds are splitting off. So you have you know, infinite worlds splitting off at all times, uh, and every possible location that a particle could be, it actually is, and then when, it, when we see it in one place, that's because our world has split off. Uh, so there's, just, there's literally infinite universes with the tiniest slice of time that you can take splitting off at all times. Uh, so therefore, it's technically deterministic, whereas Copenhagen, there is no such thing as determinism. Everything in reality is based on probability. And if you have spent any time as a programmer or anything like that, you know the concept of random itself doesn't exist. It is uh, just a handy notation for minds that can't get their head around stuff like that. It's a shorthand. There is no such thing as random. Uh, so then there's the Boyle Bone, which is also known as Pyre. It is both deterministic and it also is rational. It has mechanics. We have new evidence. And there's new research and development. These are some of the guys that I've uh, talked about. The, the primary experimenter right now is probably John Bush at MIT. He's, uh, he's got a page called uh, Hydrodynamic Quantum Analog. This is where he goes into a lot of the experiments that have been showing stuff, all of the weird effects of, uh, that, that made us believe that things have to be this weirdness down at the quantum level. That it's, that it's too much. It's to be this, there's this shift between you know, how things act in the, in the larger world and how they act down below. And, these experiments show that's just simply not true. They do act in that weird way, so long as you understand what that weirdness is at the macro level. There's no transition point. Uh, well, I understand they worked with a group at Cambridge to, uh, to develop some uh, some theories that are based on uh, effectively fluid dynamics. So, oh, it's good. Go back. There we go. All right. So here is just a little demonstration of the idea of so the Schrodinger's cat probably everyone's heard of, and that is the idea that if you put a cat in a box and uh, and uh, you you put some uh, 
hydrochloric acid, I guess, uh, uh, in, in something to smash it. Uh, I forget what age this is in. Um, anyhow, so th there's a 50% chance of a radioactive decay causing a hammer to smash this thing or not, and is going to uh, is going to kill the cat. Then basically, we he's taken what is at the smallest level a pure probability that has to be observed for it to become a reality. And what he's done is he's just scaled it up to macro reality to point out the fact that. If it is probabilistic at the smallest level, then it has to then lead to probabilism at the largest level, and therefore the cat is in a smooth transition of both dead and alive in the box until he observes it, which is absurd. So, uh, and this is his quote on Schrodinger's cat. If one can, and one can even set up quite ridiculous cases. It is difficult to do cases that are indeterminate. The original restricted to the atomic domain becomes transformed into macroscopic indeterminacy, which can then be resolved by direct observation. This, that prevents us from so naively accepting as valid a blurred model for representing reality. It, in itself, it would not embody anything unclear or contradictory. There is a difference between a shaky or out of focus photograph and snapshot of clouds and fog banks. So, the, uh, if, as I've got a quote down here, it's just kind of to remind you. So, if waves can exist without medium, why not allow probabilities to exist without events, right? That's So, you can see there's this. There is a interpretation thing going on throughout physics that makes it where they can't, but once they gave up on the idea that you have to have mechanics underlying, then it started to become a, a widespread confusion. And this is many, many years later that, this, that these things are happening, but you can see that it's kind of a sociological event occurring on, on, on the surface. So um, this right here is just to say, you know, there's the wave, wave function unobserved versus collapse. And this is the probability uh, function that was Schrodinger is the one who um, described the the, uh, the wave function that shows us the probability areas that uh, a particle would be in. Um, in, in what, when you're looking at, for instance, where an electron is, if you guys are familiar with electron shells in uh, and atoms have their little weird shapes, uh, Schrodinger is the one who developed that equation that gives us those weird shapes of where the electron shells are. One of the things that you don't learn is he did this off of De Broglie's work, you know, De Broglie of the De Broglie bone interpretation. And what, what De Broglie was doing was looking at the way that waves interfere. And simply, uh, he was, and the funny thing was, the way he was looking at it, he was trying to use relativity to a certain extent. And therefore, it's kind of related to relativity in that fashion. And he was saying, okay, if I were to look at it, Look at the way that a wave would be passing by from from uh, a given perspective, and that difference in how fast light should be going. If we were to look at it um, in a more in a way that doesn't have the idea of constancy, and I'm sorry for anybody who wasn't here yesterday, but what I'm trying to call on here is the idea that you know I was saying that light uh, would would seem to go way too fast in the other direction in that train experiment. Well, De Broglie was using that concept as a way to see, okay, if you have the difference between these two waves, what kind of pattern would show up uh, between the, uh, the various ways that waves interact? And I, I guess I'm getting a little too technical. I've never tried to explain that in any um, detail before because it's just been something that I've kind of been just writing on, but uh, I was going to get to later. But 
hopefully you understand that that just shows the way in which there is this interaction of waves and their in, uh, constructive or destructive interference that leads to these the, the probability calculation. It's not a, it's not just a wave of probability. It is it is an interference pattern. So, all right. This is also many worlds. Uh, the idea that the cat is both dead and alive. The world is just split apart. And so that means that every at every moment, any possibility that you might have uh, uh, thought of has split off in all these worlds, and, and basically the universe is just just spitting out you know trillions, zillions of, of worlds every second. Um, so uh, <laughs> this is where I like to say it's like uh, I'm just wrong. You're wrong at every single scale of resolution. Uh, <laughs> all right, so. To kind of come together with how is it that this idea of particles, you're familiar with, you know, the idea of photons, and whenever you hear about particle physics, you got muons, gluons, shuons, gluons, you know, lots of different particles. What is all of this? What are they talking about? The thing is, those particles are, they are valid in a certain sense, and that is, there's a reason why they're predictable. There's a reason why we came up with these ideas of particles, uh, and why we keep coming up with new ones. But it is not because they are necessarily something that is really there. What we're doing is putting arbitrary borders on mechanics. So to describe this, there's something called phonons. And now it sounds a lot very similar to photons for a good reason. Phonons are a quantum mechanical treatment of mechanical waves. This is something we use in crystallography whenever we were, uh, whenever you talk about how lasers work, for instance, you'll be speaking about phonon theory, which is, um, there's an interaction between mechanical vibrations in crystals and the energy which is uh, which is contained. And so it is useful when we're trying to calculate the energy and how it moves and things of that nature to use phonons. But the thing is, there, it is representative of an actual mechanical wave traveling through a medium. So there's just a wave. There are no particles, but we treat it like there are particles. We will give a number to the amount of phonons that are moving around. And not only this, they, they behave in all of the various ways that a, uh, any quantum mechanical particle does. They, they have the same sort of way in which they uh, attract each other. And you know all of those things that happen in quantum mechanics happen when we treat mechanical waves with this particle idea. So why is it doing that? Why, why you know, how, how is it that we get this idea of particles aren't there, and, no, and nobody will disagree that there's no such thing as a, as a phonon, it's a virtual particle, it doesn't really exist. Uh, it's a description of waves occurring. So the, the, the point is that there are border transitions that occur, uh, and the, there, are, there are minimal amounts of things that happen, like if you think of, uh, uh, one of the examples I like to get is a bunch of, you know what, I might have a, I have a, yes I do. Um, <laughs> So if I were to have a bunch of these uh, moai and I were to stick them half submerged in the ocean and uh, I had them all together lined up side by side and moving the top down the order that way. And um, I were to have waves come up uh, at a, a, to the halfway point, you know, they're, they're, they're striking it and none of them fall over, okay? Now, if I had the, the, the tidal surge be large enough, one of the things that could happen is the right configuration of these moai might take the same surge that would not knock down any of them, but combine the energy, so all the energy would come in until it knocked down 
just the one. So in other words, I could then say there is one moai of energy in the wave that is uh, across this specific portion uh, here. So in other words, it is the amount of energy which is required to create this transition from the moai standing up to it being knocked over. So that's an idea of kind of a transitionary state. Now I want to go back to this slide for a moment because I have this, you know, I have a lattice back there. Um, another idea that I kind of like to point out is that, uh, that let's say I, I label the amount of energy that is required for one mole of water, which is a, you know, scientific unit we use, and, uh, and is the amount that is required for, for it to go from the transition of freezing to boiling. Now, at that point, you know, so it's all true. Makes sense. Yeah, a little weird joke there. Okay. Um, then I can talk about the number of shrews that are in, you know, this water here. And, and when I added just one more, I could see crystals start to form. And so it would look as though it, that, that particulate unit that is very, you know, specific uh, would, is something real. It's something physically real. I, I've, I've added one shrew to the water and now, bam, it's starting to crystallize. Uh, that, that would occur. But the unit itself is just, it's just a, a, another way of looking at a property. Okay, so this is a, a demonstration of the Walker experiments. And what happens uh, with these is, uh, well, I'll let the, the video kind of go on a little here. over time matching a waveform. So there's an actual particle moving around in that corral, and, and I'll uh, get to go through it one more time so you can watch it again. Uh, there's an actual particle that is bouncing up and down. So what happens here is, is there's the, when you put a little bit of vibration into a, uh, a fluid, uh, you may have noticed before with water droplets, but uh, the droplet will never uh, reform, will never rejoin the rest of the, the water, it just keeps bouncing. And, uh, and what happens is even though there is kind of a driving force, the, the, little, the little waves that it creates around itself uh, actually contribute to the next bounce. So its own waves then change the, the, the shape of the, uh, of the surface that it's about to strike and so the next time it strikes, that changes the, the direction it's going. So its own motion is creating this chaotic, it's called chaotic determinism. That is that there is a mechanic for it, but the process uh, that creates this random walk that it, that it does requires so much information to be able to predict in any useful fashion that you basically have to know the position of every air molecule and every you know, in the room, and the, you know, you'd have to have such a precise and perfect amount of data that when you really track it down, you have to know where everything in the universe is just to really predict where this droplet is going to go. So instead of that, 
probability is a far better way of treating it. Uh, probability isn't what is existing. There isn't that, that droplet doesn't exist as the probability as it's moving around in that corral, but probability is one of the best ways to describe that part of the motion over time. And that's why we have a successful use of probability in quantum mechanics, because in this, you, when you have a chaotic process, it is useful to use probability, because that's going to get you closer to the answer than trying to get all the information in the universe to exactly Um, okay, so here, uh, this is a quote from, uh, from uh, Watt Anderson at Cambridge, uh, where he's, and I'll, I'll want to see the paper, is that Maxwell's fluid model of magnetism shows that a wave packet traveling along a phase vortex in an Eulerian fluid obeys Maxwell's equation. It's emitted and absorbed discreetly in that linear or circular polarization. What's more, the measured correlation between the polarization and two generated wave packets is exactly the same as predicted observed by Delta. Basically what he's done here is write, written a little blurb that, that points out all these little arguments that people have. It's like, well, what about the Bell test where, you know, it's, uh, it, it, it's supposed to predict it this way and it doesn't and it's impossible. And they, they go, there's, there's kind of this mental gymnastics that I'm willing to go through with people uh, if necessary to, to get them, you know, from one uh, point to the other. But it's actually, there are, they set up false dichotomies to support, or false, uh, excuse me. They, they set up uh, faulty situations and biases that are, uh, that, that kind of get you to see things in a certain way and so you come to the wrong answer because your presumptions are wrong from the get-go. It's kind of like asking a person what happens when a, uh, an irresistible force meets an immovable object. Well, what I've done is I've given you a faulty bias. There's a, you know, there are these, these are mutual exclusivities. I've presumed them and then asked you to move forward from something that's false. Uh, and so the same thing tends to occur in, in experiments as well, where they'll say, this is the situation, now this is what's occurring. And you, got, you have to go, no, no, that's not the situation. You, you, you're saying that if we presume these things, and I do not presume these things. Um, so what I'm showing here, that's a, a, a view of a walker where you can see the waves as, the, uh, as the, the walker goes through two slits, the waves are actually going through two. And then what happens is the, the waves that, are, that it's producing actually go through the, the two slits and then those uh, in, interfere on the other side and that's how you have that pattern on the other side that gives you the single particle going through one slit but then creating a, uh, uh, a set of fringes on the other side that behave. And then over here, I'm gonna to have to restart it uh, so you can watch it. But I'm showing over here is something that is, uh, it's not, it's usually seen as more of an art form and then, uh, than it is a part of science. But the funny thing is they're, they're, they're actually studying waves. And what you're seeing over here is that's just a droplet of water. And what the, what the guy is doing is uh, he, he's oscillating it at the right frequency and amplitude combination to create these regular patterns. And, and those patterns, like I said, they, only, they, they occur simply because of the, the combination of frequency and amplitude. And what I want to show here is, uh, and, oh, what, what you're seeing there, see those, those, how the light is showing the waves that are there? That's, if, you, if you know something about quantum mechanics, you may uh, rec uh, recognize some of the, um, the orbital patterns in this, uh, in this particular one. And what I want to show here is, you see the, there are counter-rotations. This is rotating this way, 
this is rotating this way, and then there's actually one here and one here that are uh, that are happening inside, and that is a toroid. So the the water is circulating as a torus, and so it's like a you know a uh, donut falling in on itself. But in addition to that, there are local vortices uh, that make this a complex set of vortices interacting, and uh, and the the uh, the pattern I just showed you here is actually just like a steam orbital, and that is that you've got the, uh, the a, a kind of a a lobe out this way and a lobe out that way. So it, you, we actually see some of these interesting ways in which uh, the positions of particles might be, uh, or the positions of electrons in particles might be uh, related to the ways in which fluid mechanics work in space. Um, now, uh, this is something called cavitation that I want to talk about. Now, when, when you first fired this, there are a lot of gases here, but over here, it was just ripped apart. In other words, the, the medium cannot react as fast as the, uh, as in the, in the way that it closes back up. See how they separate it out? It's kind of chaotic where it gets a little more um, uh, smooth because there's almost no gas at all whatsoever in here. And, and it closes in on itself. And if you watch, you see how you saw it again right there? It's because it's actually giving off light. Something that happens in when you have it. Yeah, when cavities close in on itself, these will actually produce light. Watch them under the very soon, they'll flash. Hold on. Bam. So, um, so what's occurring here uh, is waves are coming in, sliding, and it's ripping apart, and it'll actually rip apart in no time. So, uh, this is an idea for how what might be occurring in particles that I'm going to get to in the uh, in, in the next talk a little more. And uh, as a as a reason for why it is that they, that there is this you have this cycling uh, perturbance that is occurring that is much like the Walker you know what what would be the equivalent of the Walker because with the Walker we what we have is the restoring force is the you know the gravity is providing the um, the restoring force it's what's making the that's the droplet bounce up and down and so without Gravity as the uh, as the force that's that's creating that situation. We need to ask ourselves what is creating that situation that brings that particles acting that way. And uh, and what's happening, uh, I believe, is that we're getting this cavitation. I'm surprised I didn't get into more into that. So, um, but I guess I saved some of that for the next talk. How much time do I have? Five minutes. Good. Okay. So um, let's see. I believe I may have hit most of the major points here. And uh, it, I guess it'd be a good time to open up for any kind of questions. So, um, part wave theories come back is the biggest you know, top science uh, part of this that began with. Mm -hmm. You think it works? Well, they've tested in a lot of places, and uh, and so how would the EM drive work is a, is a good question. And um, the thing is, when, when they remove the medium. Uh, as part of the, how everything interacts, you lose a wide variety of uh, possibilities. In other words, what looks possible changes utterly. So, for instance, some of the when you talk about weird drives and, and things like that happening, one of the the, the uh, most interesting things that have kind of been something that's kind of people have been like, no, it, yeah, there's all this yes and no around it is uh, rotating superconductors, and with uh, rotating superconductors. Were producing 
uh, an anti-gravity effect. And so, you know, so what would be occurring there? Well, um, in this model, uh, when you start to ask yourself what exactly would be the, what would be causing gravity, what would be, be causing, uh, I like the language of specifically magnetism and, and attraction and things of that nature. Um, there, in fluid mechanics, wow, there's, a, there's so many different directions I could go with this, it's kind of difficult uh, to pick one direction. Uh, I think that what may be occurring with uh, superconductors is that they are, whenever it's fluxed and pinning, I'm going to get into this a lot more tomorrow. Uh, what flux pinning is, I believe, is when you are taking something that is that, that the, the space is a superfluid. And so one of the common behaviors that happens in superfluids is you get these um, vortex filaments that, have, that are occurring all throughout it. And like I said, I'm going to get into a lot more of this tomorrow. Um, and I believe what may be occurring is they, they're, they're somehow uh, allowing these filaments to bundle up in groups. And, uh, and then if you're able to make it bundle up in a group and, and stay in one place, then what you've actually been able to do is move the ether itself. So if you're capable of moving the ether itself, and if the force between atoms, which I, I said that's tomorrow as well, uh, if the force between atoms is, uh, is there because of changes in the properties of the ether, having to do with their rigidity, Having to do with, I'm going to be talking about uh, the what what they were proposing, what they called it was um, and this is the, the one of the papers by the, the group of Cambridge. Um, what did they refer to it as? Shoot, it, it's the the force that occurs whenever you have a, a fluid moves fast, its uh, its pressure is it drops, and so whenever you increase the speed around a tornado, for instance, uh, if you think of a tornado. And it's, uh, when it rotates, what happens is the, uh, inside the tornado, the, the pressure is dropped. And, uh, and so the pre you have a pressure gradient. And one of the things that will happen between two tornadoes is you have this large pressure gradient that where it goes from lowest pressure to greatest pressure. But then if you have two tornadoes nearby each other, because the pressure around them is greater, and they've all created, they've both created their own low pressure zones that are drawn together. Uh, and so it's it, that sort of interaction that um, some of the researchers who are beginning to examine this viewpoint are believing may be responsible for the forces of gravity and magnetism. But the difficulty here, of course, is trying to separate magnetism and gravity specifically. You have two different attractions. One is much greater than the other. And, uh, and that's going to be related to uh, the difference between the gross changes to the, uh, the local ether and the way that the vortex filaments uh, that are in the ether are, uh, how they are engaged. So uh, when we talk tomorrow, we're going to be talking about the, uh, the, the, uh, some of the models for atoms, uh, going back to J.J. Thompson, who was just, uh, just prior to, he was working alongside Kelvin and Julian Kelvin as well, work to um, to develop uh, a model for valence. If you're familiar with, uh, with valence, that's the way, the way in which atoms bond with each other is something that we just kind of accept without uh, going against any kind of mechanics. It just does. But J.J. Thompson came up with a way of, of saying, no, we have, uh, we have um, it's funny, it's uh, Kelvin is actually the word Thompson, so it's T. Thompson. Uh, Taylor T. Thompson. 
Uh, he, uh, what his idea of vortex atoms is that, is that they are vortex filaments. We have these rings. And then what J.J. Thompson did is he developed a methodology for the way in which these rings twist and interact that can account for valence, for why they bind, bond together in the way that they do. So he actually developed this, this whole model. J.J. Uh, Thompson is actually the, uh, uh, he's the uh, mentor of Ernst Rutherford. Rutherford, uh, you should probably know, is a part of uh, atomic physics. And Rutherford, he's uh, kind of famous for uh, commenting uh, a very, what's his, I guess, a, um, I don't know how to put it, but he, he, he thought it was kind of funny how here in the US we like to have physics that have no mechanical basis. So, uh, you know, there's, there's some comments there that kind of indicate that he probably was still uh, very much influenced by J.J. Thompson's model. And even as he was continuing forward uh, under, under the, um, what's it called? Uh, basically under the, the fad and the zeitgeist, I don't know, of, the, of, this, of science at, the, uh, at that time. So there's, uh, there's some really interesting things there. Right now we have about five minutes left. Did I get to your question directly? The, the Delta Prize. Do you think it works? I think it may be, it, it may be working. Uh, they've been uh, improving ion drives, and, uh, and that's been a, a local, uh, a, a recent thing that they've been uh, probably local as well. But I think, uh, given well, looking at the number of labs that have tested it, uh, I think yes, it does work. Uh, it, it, and the power works probably has something to do with the manipulation of ether. In other words, it, it, the guy who designed it, I think it's serendipity. I don't think he actually understands what's occurring. Uh, uh, but I think what is occurring is he's changing. He's, he's changing the density of ether from one place to the other. And by doing so, it's basically like manipulating gravity, which is something that theoretically we should be able to do if we believe the story that there is no ether and everything happens because of warp space-time, which you think about what warping of space-time would do, if you actually understand the whole idea of what warp space-time is, that's pretty much the same as changing the pressure gradient of fluid. Uh, and so uh, one of the things that I will, uh, that I've got a paper that really goes into the history here of the, of the, the interaction between, um, between the uh, ether physics of the 19th century and, and how that goes right up into especially general relativity a little more, well, a lot more precisely with uh, a lot more references, et cetera, that you can go through if you like. I, like I said, I just put this out just the other day. I wanted to finish it before this conference. And I haven't you know, published it anywhere other than just putting it online. It's actually I have to do it. I have to do it through philosophy. You can't. You, nobody's going to accept it in science. It's you know. It's like no, we have a certain way we do things. Uh, so so I always publish papers through philosophy journals. But uh, in, in that one, it'll go into and you'll see how there are things like uh, Cartan, who was the person who wrote the book on spiners or spinners. How do you pronounce that? The uh, <laughs> but the the uh, he he wrote the book on it literally, and he got his idea from the Cotterats. Again, uh, if you remember me mentioning the Cotterats, they're the ones who finished uh, Kelvin's ether theory, which is based on Lacoa. And you, so you see these things that are occurring where it's like, and then and then Einstein gets a hold of it and you, it, uh, and uses it to describe the way that space time is being, is is altered. And so you see, there's like, okay, so you've got this certain type of spin that's occurring in space time. Then you're using a model that came from a fluid dynamical you know, perspective, but then removing all the mechanics and paying no attention to mechanics, which do they use the mathematics 
which are a useful tool, and come to the right answers after you fiddle with it and make it you know fit together right. In other words, it's like it's like having a bunch of parts. It's like a it's like a blind man with a bunch of parts to a machine, and he's but he's really good at feeling and the way that they fit together. The machine was not designed properly to work a certain way, and so fiddling with it enough, even though he doesn't know what it necessarily does, he could by you know just messing with the pieces like the pieces of a puzzle put them together in the right way such that the machine does what it's supposed to do and you could even possibly create other machines that really do things without even necessarily knowing what they're doing and that's kind of what math is with these parts that only fit together in the right way and so when you take them and you kind of just like mm, no that doesn't fit no that doesn't fit and eventually you can get to where they fit and if they were designed to match something that really does produce something, a machine that does something other than just flail around. But if it were designed initially to do that, then of course you're going to be able to do something with it when you just kind of mash them together. And so I think that's what's kind of occurring with, uh, thanks, uh, with today's physics is that we, because of losing the ether perspective, uh, we've got a lot of people who were not capable of seeing this, this idea of, oh, this is the way that we, that, oh, that's why it works. You know, and so it's, it's just so funny to see uh, this revolution occurring underneath the surface. And some of these, these few people, like I, I think I might have mentioned Howard, Howard Rothman, and he, was, he was actually at Berkeley to give a lecture on, um, on uh, computer security. And, uh, and he, uh, when we started talking about his paper, he, he kind of wanted to just, you know, kind of keep it on the DL because you can just get in so much trouble uh, in the field of physics, when you just talk about anything that is um, that's controversial in any way, like I, like I watched one where he just gave a lecture on this at a uh, at you know some physics conference, and they were they were getting angry. The people in the crowd were angry at him. Angry? This is science. This is this is not religion, people. This is science. You're supposed to be happy that wow, there's this whole new possibility. This is you know this is our view. We can look at it, maybe try and open up new venues for us to take to test it out, see if it's right. You know, it's, that's that, you know you're supposed to be excited, not protecting something. And, and they literally start to all he's done is describe something, and they're getting angry with him. It's like wow, that is that's you know seeing that that is occurring is is a difficulty that is hard to overcome, and it's something I've been working for over a decade. I've been trying to put people together and then you know and, and, and I've been kind of uh, being uh, doing things kind of against the rules and that is I, I uh, since I've saw I've seen so much difficulty uh, with broaching the topic what I've started to do is kind of uh, instead of being a scientist I've started to be a uh, more of a Carney Barker, which is, which is, you know, and, and, and where I'm, you know, really what I'm doing is using emotional appeals to eventually get people to, to at least react in a way that will allow them to examine the information. And sometimes that's, that's the only answer. That's kind of been what I've been doing. And, and, and that's the thing is, I've been very happy about the, the resurgence of Pilot Bay because I've been hammering away on that. I've been, you know, being, uh, being kind of a jackass about it, actually. Uh, and, and it's ended up, you know, it's ended up being a positive thing. So thanks a lot, guys. Uh, I guess that's it for this one, and uh, hopefully you guys will join me tomorrow.